Welcome to the Chalk Up Podcast, where we'll explore professional coaches and athletes' mindsets, philosophies, experiences in the world of strength and conditioning. Welcome back to the Chalk Up Podcast. In episode five, we have Adam Bishop, who is the British strongest man and also a strength and conditioning coach who has been in an elite setup at Harlequins Rugby Club for the last 10 years. Tune in for today's episode where he takes us through his philosophies, experiences and how coaches could improve. Enjoy. Adam, I was just sort of wondering what do you sort of feel is lacking with young coaches in terms of um, in the industry, in terms of maybe experience or job roles? What do you sort of feel is lacking in the um, industry so far? Uh, unfortunately, it's for me, it's, it's coaching ability and personality. Um, that's what puts it aside, and we've got we've got a bit of an issue in the strength and conditioning community. There's more and more people want to do it, and there's less and less jobs. Um, and obviously, there's some proper courses for strength and conditioning, which is great that we can do it at university. But the number of times we'd open up for our, our volunteer program, before we know as an internship, yeah. um, you know, we open up for a volunteer program. I get I get over 120 to 150 applicants for that. And the number of people I spoke to who, who couldn't either hold a conversation, couldn't practically coach people, um, they were just kind of institutionalized when it came to learning. You know, these guys, these guys go through, they do their under, undergrad, they get a, you know, a first, uh, then they'd go and do a master's, they'd do, get a great master's result you know, from good universities. But, but their actual skills as a, a people person and a coach were limited and and, you know, I had to really pick through. I mean, I had a guy with a PhD applying, you know, for an internship, you know, or a volunteer place. And, you know, really nice guy, but he was an academic and he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't coaching people. So I guess I guess my biggest advice is is make sure you, you're, you're coaching, you know, make sure you're, you're talking to people, you, you, you find a way to communicate people because it is a bit of a, it's starting to be a bit of a lost art in the fact that people are so driven by what they learn in a book that they can't really apply it with with athletes when they're in front of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no, um, yeah, no, completely agreed. I think I, the annoying thing is, and I don't know if this is maybe changing with degrees, but it's all really geared towards working in elite sport. But job opportunities in elite sport is so minimal, so it's mm-hmm. a bit like they don't teach you they don't teach you what to do if you don't want to do elite sport or if there's no job in elite sport, for instance, like yourself, you know, working in elite sport and now you're sort of going down towards that, like self-employed, you know, obviously I know you're full-time training, but they don't really teach you the, the key skills to do both. Um, yeah. don't know what you think about that. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the thing with, I mean, it was probably not worse. I don't want to say worse in my day. I want to be one of those guys, but um, <laughs> I, I studied up at Loughborough. So the course up at Loughborough was all exercise physiology based. So, you know, great if you want to be in a lab and you want to stay on for further education and work with endurance athletes, not so much if you want to work with strength and power athletes, you know, team sports, et cetera, because, I, you know, I was doing all these lab tests using Douglas bags, you know, studying all these different things, using like different spirometers, et cetera. Um, but, you know, that's not really applicable when you're working with a, a team setting and, and for me, that's why when I, I went through the internship slash volunteer program, it was invaluable for me. You know, I learned so much. I learned so much from my peers and, and the guys I was working with, the coaches, not about, you know, what it works in theory, but what works in, in a practical setting. 
You know, it's not it's not what you know, it's what you can apply with these with professional athletes. Mm. And then to get on to the other point about uh, in terms of making money at the industry in a private setting, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree that you know maybe if you want to work in the private industry, then probably a degree might not be the way to go. Um, you know, it might, it might be better to to look at different different studies and different courses and, and learn about anatomy that way than, than maybe going to you know do an undergrad. But, but don't get me wrong, I think I think an undergrad degree is a, a great foundation, uh, but then it's obviously how how you you build on that. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. I think like anything, you need a great foundation and then it's where you sort of divert off to in which, you know, area or field um, can sort of, you know, underpin like future coaching um, roles and jobs from there. So obviously... I, I think I think that, especially on that point, most people working in the, the private sector, when they're talking about obviously coaching the public and, um, you know, let's say private sector, obviously rugby still private sector, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, they, they're going to draw on their personal experiences them, themselves as an athlete more than anything. Um, you know, so if their if their background is in Olympic weightlifting, they're more likely to be doing those sign of movements with their athletes. If they're into the CrossFit themselves, they're bringing a draw into that. So I think it says a lot for coaches who have that kind of own sporting background themselves. That's where they're going to draw their information from, rather than from obviously getting it from a, a degree level at any point anyway. Yeah. Um... What um sorry what uh what are you looking for when you see the CV come onto your desk like because yeah. we had we had Owen on uh last a couple of weeks ago and he said you know when the CV comes on the desk they want to know how you change the environment you are in rather than what you can offer is that yeah. what you're looking for as well like when I'll, you're at Queens I'll, I'll give you the the brutally honest answer because now I'm not working at the club anymore I can be I get a stack of about 120 and I'll go yeah. through and anyone who's not got a degree. In, in sports science or strength and conditioning, that's gone. Yeah. Anyone's got any spelling mistakes in their in their um, application, gone. And then from there, then I'll break it down and look for people who have got coaching experience, people who are doing different work, practical work. I love seeing guys who've been doing personal training. You know, I think it shows that they can communicate with the public. But it is that brutal. You have to have to separate these guys. And I think all S and C coaches who deal with this will be doing the same. They'll be going through and just just separating people like that. I'd be boogered then. Spelling mistakes. <laughs> I can't spell to save my life. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's simple. I mean, and it's brutal because, you know, my CV when I gave it in was was dog shit. It was really bad, you know, of how it was like set out, etc. cetera. Um, but what I did have was obviously I was able to talk in the interview. I had my sporting background as well. I had a, a, a history in rugby. I had been coaching people in my last year at university. So yeah it's, did you have anyone help you when you were putting in your cv uh to, in terms of actually putting a cv together yeah yeah no i pretty much had what i'd learned in like high school about how to write a cv which was crap um <laughs> yeah. so, i mean my my partner now used to work in hr and she saw my cv and she's like this is garbage like i can't believe you actually got a job off the back of this so um yeah it's you know it, it's definitely a skill and if you can get a good a good cover page as well um but don't I'd say with your CVs, don't just chuck everything on there. Like when you're listing previous experience, I don't care if, if you were doing some dog walking, like when you were 12, you know, or paper round, like people generally put everything on there, try and keep it relevant, you know, and have, yeah, good. If you can show that you had some work experience, like, you know, um, in a pub where you're showing you communicate with people, that's great, but don't put every single job you've had down from the age of 12 onwards, because it just makes the CV far too long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
when guys are looking at cover page, they, you need to grab their attention straight away. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why it's good, obviously, to sometimes include a photograph, make sure your, your heading is nice and clear, um, a clear, clear mission statement and stuff is, is always, always really good as well. Perfect. Um, in terms of sort of like when you first started off at Quinns, who did you sort of look up to or who helped you along the way? Because obviously you've, you've been at Quinns or were at Quinns for a while. So in terms of who sort of helped you establish that coaching philosophy or just the way you sort of coach now? Um, uh, I was heavily influenced by the, the senior coach at the time. So John Dams uh, was the, the head of SNC there at the time. Uh, and Gareth Tong, who's now the, the head of performance, he's still at the club. He's a good friend of mine. We, we've got very similar philosophies in terms of training, uh, in terms of applying that to athletes. So I learned a lot from those guys. Um, you know, but everyone really, I mean, we, we were in a fortunate situation when I, when I joined the club uh, in terms of SNC coaches. We had obviously Damsey had come from the Southern Hemisphere. Gaz had been actually, he was a mature student. So he started off being a, a PT um and then had then transitioned into professional sport that way by going to university later getting a degree from St Mary's and then getting on the volunteer program at Quinns and he started a lot later so you know in terms of life experience he was he was way ahead so it's good to learn from him uh, I had Tim Hall as well who now works with England uh from an endurance background you know he, he was a, a fantastic distance runner so we kind of pick up ideas off him in terms of his uh, aerobic conditioning etc and, and different running sessions and applications for that so it's, it's all about those kind of those people I, I talk to. I'm not I'm not a big one for following certain coaches online and throwing everything behind them, you know. But the certain big names, I think a lot of coaches are guilty of it. They'll they'll tag on to a uh, tag on to a, like a Bosch, for example, and then just do everything that that coach does, and that becomes their philosophy. Well, it's, that's not your philosophy. That's someone else's philosophy that you're following. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to talk to as many different people. As, as possible to build and see if those thoughts already confirm what you were thinking about how how kind of training should happen and and how you develop strength fitness what's you know. your um so we had like we had pete on and we found out his philosophies and then we had owen he's now in f1 and he found it important to connect with the, the sport first and connect with the person what's your philosophy when you get the guys in the gym and you only have an hour and that so Pete he literally chose three or four exercises at Tigers and they smashed that and get the adaption from that. What's your what's your go about? Very similar. You yeah. limited time with these athletes, so I'll I'll, I'll choose uh, exercises I know work uh, and exercises to get the biggest bang for their buck. You know, so I'm going to be basing my program around trap bar deadlifts behind squats, squat variation. If people can squat, I mean I predominantly work with the forwards here, by the way, guys, just to put that caveat yeah, yeah. in. Um, so I, I, I'm looking at obviously maximal strength, massive, like massive part of for, for mine and improving their scrummaging game. Um, so yeah, I'll be using kind of squats, RDLs, you know, focusing on their smaller muscles on their calf. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tending to go for those big, big lifts um, as much as I can to get a stimulus and then get them out of the gym so they can recover and get ready for, for their sessions. You know, it's important to remember that these guys are rugby players. You know, everything we do in the gym should be making them better at rugby, not making them better at Olympic lifting or, or getting them better at that. It has to have a purpose to improve them on the field. And I think sometimes that's, that's forgotten. So then with the forwards, would it be a question of, did all of them enjoy the gym? Because obviously you look at forwards and they're all, you know, big guys. And then you look at the backs. Yeah. Some of them like to get out on the field and running about. Are all the forwards like, yes, we love these exercises week in, week out enjoyment, or is it sometimes do you see a bit of a dip as well? No, you definitely see certain players, um, 
are lazier than others. Uh, but everyone will have their thing that they enjoy. And I think it's about, I like to try and connect with each player and get them to, well, I, I convince them that the way they're thinking is actually the way I'm thinking, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll, if they, you know, I'll try and get them to think that they're calling the shots. But in reality, I've already planned their program and we know what they're going to be doing. Uh, but it's about, you know, working with individuals. You have to remember, like, all rugby players, regardless of if they don't enjoy the gym, are competitive. Yeah. That they want to be, they want to be winning at everything. So if you can make it a competitive, not just against their peers, because obviously you're always going to have, you know, your Joe Marlers who are going to be dominating on certain exercises. Um, but about you need to be able to show the athlete how they've improved. So you know, if I take someone's squat um, on, on the first wave and they get up to like kind of two thirty, on the next wave if they're up to two thirty-five, suddenly so look, you, look, you're progressing. You know, you're improving. Yeah. And that becomes quite addictive for those guys to see the progress and suddenly they buy into it. So like a key example of that was um, Alex Dombrandt. You know, when he first came to us, he was kind of fresh out of uni. Uh, Self-admitted, he was on the beers, he was uh, on the pies, the curry chips <laughs> down Chippy Alley in Cardiff a little bit too much. Um, and, you know, it, it, it kind of showed. He was, he was very raw. His training age was very young. But we, we spent a lot of time and, and now he's a consistent squatter over 200 kilos regularly, you know. Um, and it's just because he, and he, he now loves his gym training, you know, to the point where he's buying his own home gym setup. And that's, you know, a huge change just by showing him the value of the training and how it's going to make him better at rugby. Yeah, it's, it's certainly making it's certainly making his rugby a lot better. He's a great player, absolutely amazing player. He's, he's one of those guys, he's a pleasure to work with because, you know, he, he had that vision, like he has that vision of how to run lines and, and pick lines that you can't, you can't coach, you know, you, you just can't coach that. So to have a guy, he's perfect for us because he comes in, he's got all the skills, he's got all those like running lines that you can't coach. And then we, we can do our job, which is to make him fitter and faster and stronger. That's easy, you know? That's maybe what some SNC coaches don't want to admit, but our job is easy compared to trying to find this, these players with the, the skill. The, yeah, the skill side on the yeah, field. Yeah, 100%. Who was the biggest squatter in the gym? In the uh, forwards wise? So in the recent years, probably look at Simon Kerridge. Uh, Wilco Lowe and Marla, those those three surprise surprise surprise. They're your kind of front row guys. What kind of numbers are they hitting? Uh, Marla is up around the kind of two forty mark. Carried around the two six five. Um, uh, what was Wilco? Wilco was unbelievable. Like that guy, he, he was in South Africa for a long time during lockdown and had no access to gyms. So I just get these videos of him like pushing his pickup truck around, tackling <laughs> like tackling oil drums. Get him uh, in the strong man. Oh, unbelievable! Yeah. So then he, he he kind of progressed quite rapidly when we did get hold of him, and you know he's a, he's a big big man. So yeah, I think he's up around the kind of two two twenty to two forty mark as well. Nice. Um, that is impressive. Yeah. What what is or what was your biggest co uh, coaching mistake at um, Quinns? I mean, I know you were there for a while, but what sort of was the biggest mistake, and then how do you learn from that mistake going forwards? Um, I think it was actually underestimating what the human body can handle. You know, you, you have, sometimes you, you undercook these, but I, I found I was undercooking the players in terms of the volume I was giving them because I was worried about them overtraining, you know. Um, but you have to remember that the, the guy, and once I worked out that, well, once I built up the guys to be able to handle the volume that I wanted them to do, then suddenly we were getting making massive improvements. But, you know, I think I, I tried to make the program a little bit too varied, um, and I tried to um, make sure the guys weren't doing too much, a little bit too much when I was obviously younger. 
And then when I kind of realized, well, hang on, if I want them to get better on their squat, then I need to squat every single week. So once I started doing that and, and trusted the, the guys in terms of their athletic ability and their ability to recover between sessions, um, the improvements were massive, you know? I think it's important to work on those individual individuals to work out kind of what volume uh, they can handle, you know, what, what can they recover from. Uh, once you find that kind of limit, then it's quite easy to, to keep people moving forward. I think that's such a good point because you see the, at the moment, you've seen those NFL SNC coaches and all that crap going on social media oh with them gosh. like balancing on exercise balls and doing press ups with chains and stuff like that. Yeah. And like I mean, what I, you've I, said I, there is like straight away, like, you know, getting back to basics with squatting, with pushing. You haven't mentioned the sure. blooming fannying around with some exercise ball with a chain on your back, have you? Uh, no. I mean, for me, uh, for the stuff we do in the gym, if we just take a small snapshot and look at the scrum, you know, I'm not going to be able to, everything we do in the gym has to be kind of, a, a way of improving them in the scrum and, and we have to be able to kind of overload the movement right you're trying to overload you know, a huge amount of force going through the spine and the scrum as, as well as shear stresses rotational strength etc um it, it can't necessarily be done and by like, a lot of people will try and replicate these with bands chains bosu balls etc but really just get the guys doing the scrummage movement you know one-on-ones two-on-ones like it's more sports specific than any sports specific exercise you're trying to do with bands and chains. Like by slapping bands and chains on it and getting people to, to do it with a neck harness on sideways sometimes is not making it sports specific. Just yeah. get them to do the competitive exercise. I mean, that's what, what, that's what they're built for. That's what they love. And you'll get more buyout than getting these guys looking stupid, covered in, in, in uh, all, kinds of, all kinds of crap that's not going to make them better rugby players. I think that's very similar to what Pete said as well, because when he has the guy, when over at Leicester, he was t- we were talking about sort of head injuries in rugby as well yeah. and getting, obviously, the scrummages doing a lot of neck strength stuff. Do yeah. you get them doing that in between their sets and things yeah. like that? or Yeah, so I'll, don't get me wrong, I'll still do cable-loaded neck with all of the players. You know, we, we're finding that neck strength is important for the front row, obviously, but it's also important for all players on the pitch because we're looking at the, the opportunity. To have, there was some studies from the RFU looking at whether... Uh, increasing neck strength reduced the chance or the severity of concussion. Yeah. Um, so for me, putting in some neck ISO work is no problem at all. I'll put that in, and that's that's you know that's that's not for me, not an issue for me. But yeah, the forwards will be doing a lot of cable banded work. Sorry, yeah. cable ISO work. Sometimes some banded work. Sometimes some reactive work on the Swiss ball. Um, some floor bridges on the neck. Um, partner assisted. Um, which is changing the direction. It's all these kind of movements, but yeah, we'll put them in between the sets in the, in the, usually on their lower body day. Yeah. Um, and then all their, all their main lift day, I should say. Um, and then also on their accessory day as well, later in the week, we'll also do those ISOs. So with the, what about with the academy lot? Because obviously they're younger boys, they're probably not um, used to all these sort of complex exercises. Do you sort of have to wait for them to get a bit yeah. older and you're like, right, now we'll start introducing it? Yeah, 100%. You just build a base for those academy guys. They're young. Um, people forget that obviously building your, your traps up is still going to be giving you supportive uh, neck strength you know still yeah, training yeah. your neck muscles so get the guys used to training and, and still but doing a, an ISO is, is not complicated for them they can all do that um, but you know these young kids now are coming in they're scrummaging early doors mm. um, so they need to be ready for that as well so and they're I, just I, getting bigger and bigger aren't they, they yeah they are um, but they need to be you know that's that's the issue I think the gulf between senior rugby and academy rugby is is the biggest it's ever been now. You know, from going from an under eighteen to suddenly playing first team is is obscene, and yeah. you just don't get those 
you don't get those freaks like you used to. I mean, going back to Marler again, like he was playing men's rugby at the age of like 18, you know? I mean, I think he was starting for us, for, for, sorry, for Harlequins when he was like 19, 20, um, which is obscene. So, Especially yeah. in the front row as well, isn't it? In the front row, it, you just it's a bit unheard of. But with the younger players, um, I, I personally think some time away from the game, just working on on getting them physically ready for rugby is, is warranted as opposed to throwing them in, um, sending them off to loan clubs, doing too much rugby, you know, and then obviously training as well during the week with the senior squad. I think it's just a little bit too much for them. I think just let them let them develop at their own pace. Um, yeah. I'm not saying turn them into gym rats. I'm just saying get them ready for the rigors of professional rugby because the golf's never been so big. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. So, obviously, you've been, we're at Quinns and, like, elite level, like, set up. But what and what sort of do you find or have found so far from being at Quinns to now sort of online programming and coaching in for yourself sort of thing? What sort of, like, the difference you've found so far of them two sort of setups? Uh, I don't have to get up so early. That's probably one thing. Uh, yeah, I've got more time to sit down and eat. Uh, no, look, I'm, I'm dealing with different athletes. Um, but, you know, the basics are the, are the same. Um, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with athletes. I'm looking at movements as much as I can. I'm getting videos from these individual athletes I'm working with. I mean, I'm only working with uh, eight athletes. So, Are, they, are these strongman athletes or are these every, everything? A mix of everything, actually. I've everything. got a young rugby player. Uh, I've got a couple of powerlifters. Uh, I've got a guy who's just training uh, and then I've got a couple of strongman athletes as well. One open guy, one under 80 guy, so a little dude. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of, it, it, it's very similar. I sometimes have to remind myself that I'm not dealing with kind of genetic elites. Uh, I don't think the guys would be offended by, by me saying that. Um, you know, it, it, so you, you have to kind of reel in your expectations a little bit. Um, and, my my idea of what's strong is warped, you know, because when I was kind of uh, at university lifting, the majority of my lifting as a young man, I was obviously surrounded by Olympic athletes, um, by these these absolute mutants uh, lifting crazy numbers. So my idea of what's strong is is probably very skewed to like, you know, what I'm coming to find out a lot of kind of other members of the public have got because I was just surrounded by the best of the best. And then when obviously going from there straight into professional sport, and seeing what these guys can do is, is another thing. You've seen guys do do big, big lifts. Uh, so just adjusting my expectations a little bit of what people can handle has probably been a, a big thing. And uh, do you go to, off body weight, relative body weight for your, your population now? Is that important for you? Would you say yeah, that's where so you go strength? I, I, I use, I, in terms of strength markers, I've, I've used the same strength markers the whole time in terms of what I accept as strong. Yeah. Uh, so I, I always go for two times body weight squat, two and a half times body weight deadlift a 0.9 times bodyweight military press, uh, a 1.5 times bodyweight bench press, uh, and a 1.35 uh, bodyweight power clean, I think are kind of good good general markers of strength. Um, but I'm not really using those too much. I'm not focused those too much with my athletes I'm working with now. I'm just looking at what they can do now and then where we're going to move them to in kind of 12 weeks' time and just keep moving forward like that. Um, and, you know, I do have obviously that end goal in mind, but it's more a case of just getting them used to lifting my way, if you like. For the yeah. 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 No, no. Um, in terms of like sort of your top, I suppose, obviously, there's loads of different coaches and everyone has their different philosophies, uh, like in the strongman world. What do you sort of feel, or maybe what do you feel coaches or athletes are currently doing 
wrong when they're training for strongman or strongwoman uh, right now? What do you sort of feel that there's maybe, I don't know, maybe like they're maxing out too much in the gym or they're not, you know, what do you sort of feel they're currently yeah. doing wrong at the minute? Going off plan, the number of times I see on Instagram, and thankfully it's not with my athletes because they probably know I'd kill them. Um, but <laughs> the number of times on Instagram I see, you know, and it's always the guys who are not the top guys, right? It's the guy, it's that group below who are always trying to fight to get into the top. And they're just going, oh, sorry, insert coach's name here. I was feeling really good today, so I went off plan and hit this PB, right? And it might be, it might be a big lift. It might be a 400 kilo deadlift or whatever. Um, but what's the point? Why are you doing that now? Like, no one cares. Not, this is shocking news for, for uh, lifters of Instagram. No one gives a shit about what you're lifting on Instagram, okay? If you're a competitive athlete and you're competing in strongman, that you need to be putting it out on the platform. And the number of times these guys just don't make it because either they get injured because they're maxing out too much and going off plan, or they just... Speaking they get, at the wrong time. Speaking at the wrong time, you know? It's, it's like you put all that effort and you spend all, for a strongman, you put, spend all that money on food and training and, uh, and then you don't bring your best to competition. It, 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 it's bizarre to me. And look, there's even some guys at the top level who, who still do something like that. I, I look at their programs, I'm trying to go what is this trying to achieve? Why are you lifting so heavy and we're still 12 weeks out from World's Strongest Man, you know? Yeah, I think, that's, but... I think that's very relatable to what the other guys have said as well, regards to taking the small hurdles at a time. Yeah. And I think that's in every sport, like endurance, you know, when you run a marathon, for example, they're like, oh, I'll do, I'll do 20K today instead of doing 15K and then they come back with a flare-up. Yeah. And I think that's quite relatable to all sports, not just Strongman as well. I think, I think now that we've got the internet, obviously, is a great thing and a, a bad thing as well you know it's, it's a great thing is people can actually access whatever coach they want in the world you know they can go out and get whoever they want but you have to remember if you've gone out and you've got hold of someone to coach you the reason you've done that is because you value their opinion and if, if they've set a program out it's for a reason you know and and you should be sticking if you do trust your coach then stick to their plan and you know if you trust them, the process trust the process it, it's crazy that people would just be trying to, like you say, even in an endurance running setting, doing extra mileage or chopping miles off or whatever or doing random stuff that the coach hasn't prescribed. Like, you're spending all that money on a coach. Like, just do the program that they're giving you. Sam? Correct me if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time you maxed out on a deadlift was 2019, wasn't it? At the yeah. Gym. So yeah. that's like, that's, what's that, like two years ago? That's literally, un, like, it sounds really stupid, but on like Instagram or like social media, that's literally unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know some people that sort of max out maybe, you know, numerous times throughout the year. And that's great if that works for them. But correct, I'm pretty sure somebody, I want to say Ed Cohen, but he said, like, you've only got so many max lifts in you. Yeah, it was, yeah it was Ed. And the, the big thing for me is, well, I've got a couple of things. I'm never going to do something for free, right? So even if I've done a big, I did recently did a big lift in the gym, but I was getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to competition, I'm not going to do something I'm good at for free. Yeah. yeah but I just do it at home and not getting paid. Um, and so that's why I only kind of max out when it's in competition. Um, which some people don't really understand. They're like, oh, you just, you know, well, you just see where your strength is at. It's like, well, I know where my strength is at because I track it through a predicted max the whole, whole year round. I can tell you exactly where it's at right now, tell you what my predicted max is, what I'm expecting to lift, you know, and that's probably what a lot more people need to do with their own training is track your predicted max more than anything else because that's how you can see if you're progressing or not. 
Yeah, I think that relates mostly to, in my opinion, like CrossFit as well. The CrossFit gyms at the moment, like they go in and they do mat, they work up to a max every single session. And yeah. it, you go in there and you're like, what are you doing? And then, for yeah. example, Fraser retires and then he goes on Joe Rogan and tells people what he's been doing. He doesn't even hit a wad until like a month before his yeah. actual CrossFit games and he just stays on the system. Yeah. And it's such an important thing to get across. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, the maxing out is, I mean, I don't understand why people would do it if, if they are competing. If they're not competing and they, they never have any desire to compete and they just want to enjoy training, do what you want. You know, it might not be the most conducive, but if you enjoy maxing out, go for it, you know. But for me as well, like with, with my lifts now, they're so heavy that I can't afford to be maxing out in a twice in a 12-week cycle, you know. If I'm building up towards well, it's like, Jesus, I'm screwed for months afterwards. Is I it was, months? Oh, mate. So when we did the um, we did the uh, max deadlift at Worlds, uh, um, I pulled 509 and I, I was screwed all the way through. I didn't do any deadlifting until I got to Brian's comp, which was the end of November. Uh, um, oh, sorry, it's in December. So I didn't deadlift for about six weeks and then pulled 490 there. And then after that, and haven't deadlifted since. You know, I've just been killing them. <laughs> would you so say? Relaxing. Would you say the deadlift's the one that takes it out the most? Yeah, probably. Um, if you're going to max well, out on any lift, would that be the one to like? You like, right? I need to make sure I recover properly for this. I, I think so. For me, it's my heaviest lift. Um, yeah. Probably, maybe yoke carry is something I'd never want to do heavy. I never train it heavy. Um, we recently did one. Well, in 2019 at Worlds, we got there and they'd messed up the weights, and it was 615 kilos. Um, it was about 100 kilos heavier than it should have been. And yeah, that was that was pretty extreme. Um, so anything with extreme load, you don't want to be only having to do too many times. So when it comes to your sort of macro cycle, have you got an off season for the strong mat? Is it always like, right, well, I'm training for the British or the Worlds? Where yeah. do you want to peak? So this year is, is pretty much fucked up um, yeah. in terms of competitions because obviously we've had the first start of the year, there's been nothing. I had one contest at the start of the year. Everything's been so. I've got about eight contests, nine contests in six months uh, at the back of the year. So that's literally going to be just event training, compete, event training, compete. You know, and try and hold on. Uh, but you know, in my usual, most of my time, if I'm between competitions, my off-season training is just training like a bodybuilder. You know, I'm just training to increase muscle size. I'm, I'm lifting lighter. Uh, if I'm still deadlifting, it'll be technical focus, not heavy. Um, I'll still squat. I'll still log press, etc. But it'll be lighter. Um, and then uh, this is the first time uh, ever that I've actually had a full 12 weeks to build up to World's Strongest Man. So now I've got a nice, clear kind of progression through. Where you go a bit more strongman specific. Yes. Yeah. So the start of this 12 weeks, I'm still trying to push my body weight up. Um, so I'll do that for the first kind of eight weeks. And the last four weeks will all be event training. So it's just practicing my sport. Yeah. Uh, and so how, how many of the top guys in the strongmen are actually full-time strongmen? Because I know a lot of the guys still have like other part-time jobs, full-time jobs, whatever it is? It's getting more common now, um, but it's still not that many, you know? Probably yeah. uh, eight to ten, I think. Um, everyone's, but most out of that, most people have still got a side bit, you know? Like, for example, um, I'd re like refer to myself as a full-time strongman, but I'm still doing some coaching. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that, like, JF Caron from Canada is a full-time strongman, but he owns a gym. Yeah. Uh, so everyone's got their side bit. I mean, Eddie was truly full time, um, yeah. and the reason for that is he didn't he didn't even sell anything. He didn't sell any merchandise when he was training. 
didn't even have a social media presence back when he was trained to win World's Strongest Man. He just had a sponsor who paid him a salary. And that was it. He was just going off the World's Strongest Man. Because he was doing some sort of like full-time work before he, you know, made that next step. It was, he was like, was it labouring or he was doing he was quite a physical a, job, wasn't it? He was a um, heavy goods vehicle mechanic. Yeah. So, so he'd be doing that all day and then, uh, you know, you'd be knackered and then he goes in the gym for two, three hours to do his session. Exactly. He, uh, yeah, Eddie's probably the most stubborn and kind of focused people I've ever met. You yeah. know, he, he, he's unbelievably stubborn. The way he trained, no one else could train like Eddie did. Honestly, because he was just so like focused on this one goal he was looking to achieve, that he'd be in the gym for hours upon hours. He, you know, he says, you know, he says himself like he he was terrible to his wife and kids because he was never there. You know, you go from 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 work straight to the gym and then get home about ten o'clock and that was it. Yeah, I seen an interesting thing on your Instagram. I think somebody asked you how many times do you train a week, and I think you said something like you train four days, but then you have your Mm -hmm. seven sessions in those four days. Yes, so that's a that was probably the cha- the biggest change to my training I've made from going full full time. Yeah, um, I decided that my sessions were just too long. Um, now that I'm lifting heavier, obviously it takes me longer to to get up to those top sets. Yeah. Um, so what I've done is I've split all those sessions up. So yeah, on a Monday I'll I'll do my squat session and then my the rest of my leg stuff is in the evening. You know, all my kind of leg presses. Prowler work, you know, that will eventually become truck pull work yeah. in the evening. Uh, and it's the same, you know, I'll do my log press and then press volume on Wednesday. Friday's a tough day, that's deadlift and then event training. Uh, and then Sunday is like a, a back assistance work. And for me, it just made sure all those sessions are under an hour. Um, yeah. And it means I'm more focused. I can eat more as well around them. Um, so I'm a lot better fueled up for, for, for peak training. So on those other days, what are you doing? Is it just recovery, um, sort of planning your next four days of training? Is it you planning your training or? Yeah, it's me. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my, plan, my training's all been planned out. I'm a, I'm a planner, I'm a schemer. So yeah, I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll have my training all set out uh, and I just stick to it. Um, but on those kind of Tuesdays, Saturday is my day completely off. I don't yeah. even think about anything else. Yeah. Um, and then on Tuesday and Thursday, my recovery day. So I'll try and get three different modalities of, of recovery in. Whether that's, um, for me, it might be some active recovery by, you know, doing some cardio, um, doing some different mobility work. Um, I'll do some red light therapy, which I'm enjoying at the moment. I'll do uh, some compression garment work. Um, I'll also use the hot tub and stuff just for that, um, just some heat. Or go for the cryo chamber as well. Uh, and I'm just looking at getting into a hyperbaric chamber soon as well. So, yeah. Yeah, I just use those days as my recovery days, and they're going to be really important once we get kind of close to the world and everything gets heavier. So all these all these elite level strongmen, do you think anyone else sort of follows suit with you, or you would you say you're quite different to everyone else? Uh, I think I'm quite different. Um, mm. The recovery side of things, more and more people are doing it. I just don't. I think they they just a lot. The problem with strongmen, a lot of people just do stuff because Brian or Brian Shaw or, or Eddie did it before them. Yeah, and they don't really know where as and when to apply it. Um, like, the, like the Cold Wars therapy, um, in my opinion, that should be re- reserved for 24 hours post your session if you've got a day off. You know, you shouldn't be just doing back-to-back sessions all the time with Cold Wars therapy after every session because you're going to attenuate strength gains. Yeah. Um, there is literature su- to support that. Um, so, you know, a lot of the guys will be doing a lot of recovery, but whether they know when and how to apply that is probably a different matter. 
Yeah, Do you yeah. feel like, you know, the environment's changed so much for you from going like not full time and job? Do you feel like for general public, you know, when a say for example builder's coming into the gym and he's feeling shit that day, how important those factors play with sleep, recovery and everything like that? You can't put a price on it, can you? Sleep sleep's key. Uh, like I've said this multiple times before. Um in terms of your hierarchy of recovery work, you should be focusing before you even spend money on any other recovery modality, make sure you're sleeping enough, make sure you're eating enough, and then do some form of active recovery. All of those are all those are free, you know. Obviously yeah. you don't buy food, but making sure that you're kind of on point with those three things and then, you know, look at, you know, maybe, you know, going and getting do some cryotherapy or, or whatever. But but making sure you've got those on point is, is hugely think, important. That's an interesting one when it comes to the food as well. Would you say when you're in training is your nutrition different to sort of pre-comp or do you try and keep it all the same? For me, I'm, I'm pretty much on a perma-bulk all year round, you know, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm one of the little guys. So my, my calories uh, build up, but that's been another change, obviously, moving to full-time strongman as I've had a chance to actually periodize my nutrition as well yeah, and increase my calories as we go into comp. So right now I'm on 7,000 calories a day. And then by the time we get around to our strongman, I'll be on like 8,500 just because obviously... I'll be pushing my body weight up. I'll be heavier. Um, so what's the ideal body weight that you want to be at for the strongman? Uh, well, it depends on competition. Yeah. Uh, so for Britain's 2020, I actually stopped putting weight on and went to um, a state at 145. Uh, okay. kilos. Uh, but for Worlds this year, Worlds is a little bit of a slower contest. So it's uh, you know, a lot needs to be heavier and statically stronger as well. So I'm going to go up to 160 uh, ready for the Worlds. God, that's a massive uh, difference. Yeah, I mean, well, we talking obviously Brits was back in 2020, January 2020, so yeah. well over a year ago now. Um, but I'm currently sitting at uh, 157, so not not far to go before I can kind of get used to that body weight. The only thing I feel sorry about you guys is trying to get a seat on a plane. Oh, <laughs> so, one of my favourite games, though, right? So oh. one of one of uh, my favourite games. You get on a plane, I'll always wait until the last person to get on, or one of the last people to get on, and um, I just love seeing the, the fear in people's eyes as I come down the aisle and they've got a seat next to them. And they think I'm going to sit next to them. Um, so yeah, that's, that's enjoyable for me, but yeah, most of the time I'll try and either get into business class or, or um, two seats, like premium economy or if there's two seats. Yeah. But <laughs> we, we, we've had some bad mishaps with, with planes and, and stuff. Like I remember we, we flew to Botswana uh, in 2016 for worlds. And there's only, there's only one flight to Botswana from Joburg every day. Um, oh. So all of the all thirty strong men were on this one plane. Oh my god! And it was a um, you know one of these small small little jets with two seats either side. Okay, yeah. so all there's probably only about sixty seats, and thirty of them are taken up by strong men and their luggage. Um, and uh, I think at one point Brian Brian had to get up and go to the toilet, and he couldn't actually close the door to the toilet because he's so wide. Is that six foot eight? Isn't he six foot eight? Six eight. I mean. Like, as we were, as we were getting on the plane, I could see the the pilot looking nervous. That's not that's not what you want to see. Are we going to be able to take off? Did you have to like split up? Like yeah. you lads at the back, you lads at the front. Yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had no choice. It's, it's happened before. Like even when we've had premium economy seats, um, one year we were flying out to Malaysia and they booked us premium economy. But the problem was all those premium economy seats are next to each other. So even though you've got more legroom, 
suddenly all the strongmen are still like kind of sat like this. So they had to move us around the plane and they were waking up these poor Malaysian people going, oh, we've just got to put someone next to you. And then we kind of waddle in and sit down and, <laughs> and like ruin their flight. So, yeah. Um, just where do you see yourself from a business point of view and a coaching, or sorry, an athlete point of view and a, a business point of view? Are you going to try and continue the business or is it just literally like a side hustle to con- concentrate on your world's strongest man or is it... Yeah, so for, for me, obviously, the, the ultimate goal for me is winning World's Strongest Man. Um, I see myself as an athlete first and foremost. Uh, the business for me is, is secondary. I'm not really that motivated by money yet. Um, but, I, you know, I think, in all honesty, I think Eddie did it the right way around. He, he went all his eggs in one basket to win World's Strongest Man and then focused on making money off the back of it. Um, so that, that's the way I look at it. Um, next five years is going to be me competing full time. And then after that, I'll, I'll kind of focus more on the coaching side of things, whether that's online or that, whether that's back in rugby, I, I don't know yet. Are you going to go yeah. to the boxing? Boxing, no chance, yeah. No? You pack <laughs> no. a punch? <laughs> for me, mate, it's, no, no, it's not for me. Not when I'm competing in strongman, definitely. Um, they're, they're making some money off it, though, so fair play to them. Like, I can't, you can't blame the guys for going to this boxing match. They're making like a million dollars each, so it's not, yeah, not bad money. I would not want to pack a punch off them, though. Like, that's no. going to hurt, isn't it? No, they've got to hit you first, though. They're still too heavy. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie's big at the moment. Thor's still big. Uh, but I know they are dropping their weight down. And it's interesting following them and looking at their training for a different sport, you know? 100%. They still I can't believe how much weight they lost. Yeah. yeah. But the yeah. mentality you said Eddie had earlier, like you can see it in his training. He's still just so driven, isn't he? Such yeah. a driven athlete. He, he, he's, so, he's so driven. That's why I think he, he might have the edge in this and the fact that he, he, he'll throw everything at it, you know? He'll go, like, full-on OCD with it. Um, so, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what the result is, to be sure. Um, last, last but not least, what is your three top tips to all aspiring or just general coaches out there um, going forward? Um, I'd say train. the first tip would be make sure you train yourself. You know, make sure you, you lift or do some form of exercise yourself. That sounds crazy, but there's a lot of people who don't. Uh, or there's a lot of people who will get so immersed in coaching people they won't end up having time to actually train themselves. But if you train yourself, you know what works, you know what doesn't work, uh, and then you can apply it a lot easier. Uh, second point would be make sure you are coaching people and talking to people. Uh, and my third tip in reality would be something like uh, enjoy it. I mean, that's, that's a crazy point, but if you don't enjoy coaching, if it's a drag for you, then don't do it. Like find something else. Um, you have to enjoy improving people and, and making their kind of, whether it's from a, uh, an individual point of view and making someone's life better or whether you're improving someone's athletic performance. So yeah, probably just some real basic ones there, but don't, don't ever do anything you don't enjoy. You know, it's not about the grind. It's about enjoying life. Do you think that helped you a lot when, you know, because obviously you lift a lot of weight going into the Quinn's room, like the likes of Joe Marler looking up to you and stuff like that on, when you get on a squat rack? Definitely. I think, I think, I do think that, and I know it shouldn't, but I definitely think that kind of my word on these movements is probably more accepted uh, because they kind of see me do it week in, week out. Um, And unfortunately that's the way people are. It shouldn't be because, you know, people should accept people's expertise, whether they, you know, are, you know, 80 kilos wet through, whether they're, you know, it doesn't mean that, that someone knows any more or any less, but, the message is definitely stronger when it's coming from someone who 
uh, kind of walks the walk as well as talks the talk. Yeah, I think it's, it's, as soon as they see someone competing on the stage your kid competing at, it's like, okay, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Let's just listen. Def, definitely, yeah. I think I think it is. And that's maybe another issue that some, some coaches have is getting buy-in from players um, if they don't train themselves. Yeah. Do you yeah, think no. it's really important as well to be relatable to the sport? Like for a coach, like, you know, you know, at Owen on, he was really relatable to the F1 guys. He had to learn about F1. Do you think that's really important as well? 100%. You've got to know, yeah. you've got to know your sport inside and out. You know, obviously, I, I played rugby all the way through, uh, played professionally for, for a year as well. Um, so you have to understand the, the, the needs of the sport and the, the, um, the stresses on the athlete. Um, that, that's massively important because how can you understand what the problem is if, if you don't know what the actual problem is itself? You know, how can you make anyone better if you don't know like what they need to be better for you know it's all well and good just going i'm going to make someone stronger well is that what they actually need for the sport they're doing yeah you know, it sounds it sounds crazy yeah 100 i think that's such a good point there no, oh, brilliant oh, adam thanks so much for coming on mate this has been brilliant oh, you're, welcome. you're welcome man thanks adam that's awesome guys. as i said before i think i said right it was you know i think this is a fantastic idea for a podcast because from what like we discussed at the start there's a lot of guys wanting to get into strength and conditioning and, and maybe if people have this information then they're going to be set up better to to work out if if one if they want to go into that because let me tell you guys like people romanticize the fact of working in professional sport you get paid a lot less than if you're in the private sector and your hours will be a lot longer okay yeah. obviously you get the satisfaction of working with professional athletes but there's always this cycle i see in our industry which goes you know you start working with the public, then you want to get into professional sport, get into professional sport, work your ass off for not as much money. And then you leave professional sport and work in the private sector, get with the public and make more money. So it's like this, this circle that goes on. Um, but at least if people know what to expect, then they can make a, a good decision going in. Yeah, it's, it's a great one to put on your CV, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. It's all about, you know, adapting to any individual and any person. Like, you know, the lads have said, it's like elite athletes are humans. You've just got to be able to relate to them and have a relationship with them. Because regardless, definitely. you're not gonna have a you're not gonna get them to do what you want to do if they think you're a dick. Yeah, definitely. 100 percent That's yeah. it. That's it. No, I, I, as well as Adam said it as well, you just got to enjoy it. It sounds really, really silly, but if you don't want to get up at six o'clock in the morning, you can't be bothered to coach people, then what are you doing it for? You know, if yeah. you won't you won't you won't survive long in the sport if you don't love it, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs>